this evening, I ask you to take your Bible to Exodus chapter 7. I want to, while you're finding your place there, I want to thank two different groups of folks. They're probably some of the most um, overlooked people in the church. Uh, first of all, I'd say the most thankless job in a Baptist church is the PA system ladies and the men that work the PA system. You know, you don't really ever realize they're there until there's a problem. And then when there's a problem, they only receive nothing but criticism. And um, by the way, I'm in a barrel. I don't know if you can hear that, but uh, I didn't say that to say to, to say that, but I, I just intentionally wanted to thank the, the ladies and the men who work the PA system. Nobody ever thinks of them. Nobody ever thanks them, but they're faithful. They're there, and I'm still in a barrel. Um, and then I want to secondly say, I don't know if this one's on. We can turn this one off if, uh, if uh, it is. Um, but I also want to say thank you to uh, Miss Brown and Brother Woody and uh, the, the ladies and the men who are in the band. I appreciate them. Uh, what you may not realize is many times they're up here on Saturday night preparing for the service on Sunday with a special singing and special music. Uh, we normally throw things on them at the last minute and change up the entire program and routine, and we ask them to be creative and think of things to play for offering specials. And you don't really recognize their value until you're playing music off of a tape. And uh, Brother Pickett and Brother Sean can't keep up to it. Nobody knows where to go, and nobody knows when it's going to start. And that's when piano players and musicians become extremely valuable. So I want to publicly thank you all so much for the effort that you all put into the services each and every week. Exodus chapter 7. Can you all hear that? Do you all hear that ring as well? What's that? The monitors? Yeah, maybe turn the monitors down. Yeah, see, this is why the Lord had me say all that. I really did not say that because in any anticipation of uh, microphone trouble, but... We are actually still working on our system. Uh, it was We paid some people to come up this week, take a look at it, evaluate and fix any issues. So we're kind of now correcting the board to what we've had to correct over the years. We just kind of had to make it work, you know, like redneck wing it. We've, we've kind of put some duct tape on it before, and now we're trying to figure out what levels they should be. So if you'll bear with us, that'd be much appreciated. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to thank those people. Exodus chapter 7 tonight. Um, I want to speak to you. So far, our uh, little sermon series, I've not, I've not really labeled it a series. I've just been preaching through the book of Exodus so far, and I've not gone so far as to say that it's a series. But so far in our preaching, we've basically looked at the life of Moses and his interaction with God. And now tonight we take a severe turn, not looking at Moses, but now we're evaluating Pharaoh. And Pharaoh and Moses will now interact quite a lot, but there's just an exchange and just some things in the Bible I think that we would be silly if we didn't take a look at tonight and how they apply to our lives. So Exodus chapter 7, verse number 7, the Bible says, And Moses and Aaron, uh, I'm sorry, and Moses was fourscore years old, and Aaron fourscore and three years old when they spake unto Pharaoh. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, when Pharaoh shall speak, uh, when Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, "Show a miracle for you," then thou shalt say unto Aaron, "Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent." And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, now the magicians of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. Let me ask you a question. Why was Pharaoh so stubborn? I mean, think about it. Was Moses asking that much? 
Was Moses really trying to, at this point, Moses is simply asking not for the people to be let go. He's just simply asking for the children of Israel to go just a few days into the wilderness and sacrifice unto their God and they would return. Moses isn't really asking that much. What makes Pharaoh here so stubborn? I'd probably suggest to you that it's the same thing that makes us so stubborn. When it comes to what we know God wants us to do, and yet sometimes we're just simply not willing to do it. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll ask the Lord's blessing on the sermon. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all you do. Father, I pray tonight that you use this sermon in a mighty way. Use me, speak through me, and speak to the people who are truly trying to draw closer to you. I pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen. Many years ago, I was invited to go to a youth camp that was not ours. Um, now, we had had some experience going to the same location. Many of you may, who have been here a long time, may remember the location I'm speaking of. It was Pot of Gold Youth Camp. And I know that some of y'all are familiar with that place, but Pot of Gold was very, um, not just traditional, but very uh, uh, primitive would be the word I would use. Uh, there was about 100,000 steps on the way up to the chapel. And I'm not kidding you, there was well over 100 steps. You had to climb this extremely large hill to get up there. None of the dorms were air-conditioned. They all just had, you know, the mesh up around so that the burning hot summer breeze could blow into your dorm throughout the night and you had to sleep in that. And then you'd wake up in the middle of the night and right there on the screen would be the most giant praying mantises you've ever seen in your life. And uh, I think they were planted there to encourage prayer in your life. But I'm not kidding you. They were 12 inches long. They were enormous. I didn't even know they grew that large. The pot of gold is very primitive. Um, and we'd been invited. My dad was actually speaking at a youth camp down there. So I went and was part of the, one of the church youth groups. The good thing is I got to stay in the hotel with the speaker. And so I actually got an air-conditioned room. I didn't have to live in the hot dorms. But one day I wanted to go down and I wanted to do what they have horseback riding there, and I wanted to go take part in the horseback riding. Now, I've shared with you before that I actually worked on a cutting horse farm for three years. So at this point in my life, I had ridden horses quite a lot, and I knew how to, you know, I knew how to ride them. I knew how to move them. Uh, it was not new to me, so I was, I was at this point in my life pretty good and pretty comfortable on a horse. Well, we go down to the horseback riding, and I'm thinking this is going to be awesome. Because at Pot of Gold, they have this just giant acreage, and there's woods everywhere, and the hunter in me is thinking, I'm going to go find every big deer here and just look at him. And I was thinking, man, I'm going to trail ride through these woods, and I'm going to see animals, I'm going to see nature, and it's just going to be great. Well, it wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be as we hopped on the, the horses. I knew I was in trouble when they gave me what's called a paint horse. Um, for those of you that don't know, they're the pretty ones. They, they're the ones that usually you see like Indians and in, in, uh, in, uh, Westerns on. They, the wild-looking ones are white and orange and red, and they're, they're all just plastered on there. So they're called paint horses. And if you're, you've ever been around horses, they're beautiful, but what they make, they make up in beauty, they lack in brains. And so I knew I was in trouble. But they gave me this paint horse, and we fall in line one right after the other. The leader in front then another horse, then my horse. I believe I was third in line. And as I went on this trail ride, I realized this thing was not going where I wanted it to go. In fact, we could have blindfolded that horse and taken any bit out of its mouth. It was going to walk the same route every day, every time, and never divert from it. In fact, one time, we came to a turn where the leader went this way, and the other person that was behind the leader went this way, and I took the reins of that horse, and I grabbed them low to the bit so that that bit dug into its mouth. And you say, that's cruel. I wanted to see deer, and it wouldn't let me see deer. So I grabbed those reins, and I make a U-turn with that horse's neck. In fact, he's back here almost licking my boot. His whole neck is wrapped around, and he is still going that way still follows the horse in front of him. And I'm thinking, what kind of stubborn animal am I riding? Have you ever heard the phrase, stubborn as a mule? I've heard that. Now, I've not had much interaction with mules. We, we've had some throughout our history and throughout our life over at our house. And I will say, they are very 
stubborn. But tonight I want to speak to you on this thought. Not stubborn as a mule, stubborn as a fool. What was it that made Pharaoh, despite Moses beckoning and almost begging and pleading for Pharaoh to let his for God's children to be let go, what was it in Pharaoh that just rose up and said, No, sir, I will not do that. I believe we share four traits very similar to Pharaoh at times, and they are, number one, stubborn because you don't believe God is at work. I want you to take your Bible to Exodus chapter 5. Now, this is actually the very first time that Moses stands up and speaks to Pharaoh. He approaches Pharaoh, and he's finally mustered up the courage to go and talk to him about letting God's people go. And there was a tremendous battle between Moses and God, and we've covered that pretty much in great detail. But Moses finally decides to go in chapter 5, verse number 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast uh, unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the the desert and, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works get you unto your burdens. In other words, the Bible here is saying, and Pharaoh is saying, as Moses approaches him and says, Pharaoh, you want, our God has spoken to us, and he said to let us go just three days' journey and sacrifice and, and hold a feast unto him. And Pharaoh looks at them and he says, how do I know your God's real? How do I know you're not just shysters, just swindlers coming into my court and begging me to to have the children of Israel go? How do I know you're not just going to all leave? How do I know that you truly are sent from God? And how do I know that God is even at all real? You know, the Bible shows in great detail people who had tremendous difficulty trusting that God was at work in their life. The Bible says in John chapter 12, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Could you imagine being with Jesus when he turned the water into wine? When the ten lepers approached him and he cleansed them all? Could you imagine witnessing some of the tremendous miracles of Jesus? I I would have loved to have been there to see Lazarus come forth. I think that would have been one of the most monumental miracles of Jesus' ministry as Jesus calls a dead man back to life. And we'd say, man, if we could have just been there, I'm sure our faith would have been so strong. It would have been, we'd have been encouraged by every single miracle that he did. Did you know? That there were people around Jesus while he was doing all these miracles, and they said to themselves, that's fake. There's no way this is real. There's no way. This is is just a a swindler. There's no way this is really happening. And despite their own eyes seeing what Jesus was doing, they said, there's no way I believe God is using Jesus. I wonder tonight if Jesus spoke to your heart through this sermon. And I wonder if the Word of God is being preached, if as while the Word of God is being preached, God knocks on your heart's door tonight. And He says, you need to fix this. You need to change this. Sometimes you're just a little bit stubborn. And I wonder if Jesus spoke directly to your heart tonight, if you'd know what that would feel like. Or if you didn't know what it would feel like, if you would know how to appropriately react. I remember one night I was at youth camp and I had convinced myself for many years that I was saved. I had walked forward in a children's church at one point and 
and I, I was really walking forward to get out of my seat, if you know what I mean. Just children's church, and just you just you played all these games, and then you endure a 15-minute lesson so that you can just get up and play more games. And that's where I was. And he said, does anybody want to trust Jesus today? And boy, my hand shot up. And I walked to the back, and I sat there and listened to the, the spiel. And I, I really just did what he was asking me to do. Well, at 12 years old, I was at youth camp for the very first time as a camper. And I remember a preacher preaching a, a message. And, and to be honest, I couldn't tell you the exact contents of the message because as the sermon was being preached, I was having a war within myself. I was, I was dealing with the thought that I know I'm saved because I, I've gone forward before, but I was also dealing with the thought, then why do I feel like this? And I, I was literally thinking in my mind, is this conviction? Is this what true conviction is? And I'll tell you, I'll describe what it felt like to, for me. It felt like somebody had their fist pressed directly on my chest. And you say, well, that, that I don't believe, you believe whatever you want. I was in such extreme conviction, my chest was in pain. And I was sitting there as the preacher was preaching and I was choking back the tears and I was choking back uh, this idea that I knew I was saved, but why was I dealing with this? The preacher said, every head bowed, every eye closed. He asked us to all stand to our feet and I remember verse 1 of invitation, verse 2 of invitation, verse 3 of invitation, verse 4 of invitation. And I remember thinking to myself, man, how long is this invitation going to last? Youth camp, sometimes they drag out, and the man gets up and says, well, if nobody else comes, we'll, we'll close out, and then somebody else comes. And then, and then he says, well, if nobody else comes, this next verse, and then somebody else comes. And then he says, if nobody else comes, and then nobody comes, he says, we'll do one more just for good measure. So like, you liar! I remember as we were standing there, my hands were gripping the back of the seat. And it just so happened I had sat in the aisle... Uh, in an aisle seat, I, I didn't have to fight over anybody. And I, I believe that night if I had have had to fight over somebody, I probably wouldn't have stepped out. God just put me in the right seat at the right time, and I was right there in the middle. Verse 1, 2, 3, and I probably would estimate that we had gotten to about seven invitation songs. And I finally was fighting this battle, but I'm the preacher's kid. Everybody's going to look at me and say, you hypocrite. Everybody's going to look at me and say, what, what have you been doing your whole life? What, you've sat through all of these lessons. You've sat through all these sermons. I mean, your dad, if anybody, should have been able to tell you about Jesus. And I remember thinking these thoughts all the while my chest is just in gridlock. I, I literally, I'm not making this up. I'm not, I'm not uh, coloring the story at all. I was two-stepping in and out of my seat. Constantly, I would get enough courage to step. And they always say the first step's the hardest. Not from my experience. It was steps three, four, five, six, seven, and 8 that were the most difficult. Because I would sit there and I would, I would go to walk. And about verse 7, I finally, yeah, I finally came to myself like the prodigal son. Realizing what was in my heart could not be from indigestion. Although camp food produces plenty of that. I realized that night that I was a sinner and that I had been deceiving myself that a prayer that I prayed when I was too, too not focused on spiritual things for me to really get saved, that I had been trusting in a prayer and not trusting in the Savior. And that night, about verse 7 of the invitation, I walked the aisle. I went up and addressed my youth count, my youth director, and he said, what can I help you with, Andrew? And I thought he was just, the way he uh, approached me and greeted me, it almost seemed like he was just, you know, asking if I wanted to go play basketball afterwards. Like, oh, you want to go, you want to go grab a snack at the snack shack? And I was like, I need to be saved. I went to the back room, and somebody took the Bible, and they showed me how I can know for sure. And, and honestly, I didn't need the, the, the plan of salvation. You know what I needed? I needed a tile to sit on. 
I needed a tile to kneel on. I needed a place. I needed that memory of complete repentance and complete restoration. Even to this day, I hear sermons preached, many from our own pastor. And I'll be sitting in my chair, and he'll say something. And I realize that I've been wrong. I realize that my life is not as polished up as I would like it to be, and it's definitely not even where anywhere close to what God wants it to be. And I'll look at myself, and I'll look at the preacher, and I'll hear something, and, and my eyes will drop to the floor. And that old feeling of gridlock comes back in my chest. And like our pastor said this morning, biblical preaching always produces godly conviction. And he'll say something, it'll strike me. And you know what? I still fight that same old battle. But you're the pastor. What are they going to think if they see you kneeling at the altar? What is everybody going to say if they realize that you have sin in your life and you need to get it right? What is everybody going to think about you? That old thought process comes back, and I I still play the two-step game, and I still deal with those thoughts of that battle, that inner conflict of should I go or should I stay in my seat? Do you know tonight that if I'm preaching the Bible, you'll fight that same battle? There's no doubt in my mind, unless Jesus comes back, we'll have an invitation tonight. And if the Bible's been preached and you paid attention at all, I would hope and I pray that the Holy Spirit of God can speak to your heart. And I hope and I pray that you'd be sensitive enough to to realize that God may be working in your life, and He may be asking you to do more, and He may be wanting you to grow just a little bit closer to Him. But you'll still fight that battle. And it's going to be hard. But don't let your stubbornness keep you away from a good, loving Savior. Sometimes we're stubborn because we don't believe God is at work in our life. Secondly, we're stubborn because we get this idea that sometimes we're good enough. We, we, we kind of get this feeling that, hey, what I've got going isn't quite so bad. Now, I want to make sure you're back in our passage tonight, Exodus chapter 7. I want to draw your attention to verse number 10. God gave Moses specific instructions that as they approached Pharaoh, there would be a very good chance he would ask for a miracle. He would ask for a sign. And can we all be very honest tonight? Pharaoh didn't want a sign. He was trying to get them away from him. And he was saying, if you can't produce a sign, if you can't show me some credentials, you have no right even talking to me. Pharaoh wasn't wanting a sign, but nonetheless, Moses and Aaron gave him one. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, what a miracle God's doing. Using Moses and Aaron, God does this through the rod. And, and we, if we were there tonight, I tell you, sometimes we have trouble making the Bible real life, don't we? Sometimes it's hard for us to imagine this. But I'll tell you what, Brother Chick, if I throw this down at your feet and it turns into a snake, you probably aren't going to sit there very long. Sometimes it's hard to, to realize what the Bible is saying, but the Bible is saying that Aaron was holding a rod, and it was a wooden rod, and he throws it down, and it just just squirms up and slithers up and turns into a snake. I don't know if it was venomous. I don't know if it was non-venomous. All I know is the only snake is a uh, the only good snake is a dead snake, unless God turns your rod into one to prove to Pharaoh that it's a tremendous miracle by God's glory. But nonetheless, could you imagine? God turning this rod into a serpent. If I was Pharaoh, I'd be dumbfounded. If I was Pharaoh, I would... Whoa. Okay, boys, I didn't think you could do something like that. That's a pretty good trick. Now, what were you saying about going three days into the wilderness? But that was not at all Pharaoh's reaction. Verse 11. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers... Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. 
basically they use cheap tricks to produce what God did in a miracle. They use, whether you want to call it sorcery, whether you want to call it an illusion, whatever you believe, they produce the same miracle. And Pharaoh looks at Moses and says, well, that's no big thing. I mean, why does that convince me if my own people can do something very similar? And then I love the, the picture as all of these serpents. We'll just, we'll just do like a kung fu movie. There's 20 serpents around the, the one serpent in the middle. That's just, we'll imagine that. And they all got him surrounded. And my favorite part is he just goes all Chuck Norris on them serpents. And he just kicks them all in the face and tight Levi's and then swallows them whole. Isn't that awesome? I love the picture of God is greater than the world all the time. Everything God produces will last. Anything man produces is temporary at best. Now, I love that picture. But nonetheless, when, when Moses and Aaron throw that, that rod down, it turns into a serpent. This was Pharaoh's reaction. Huh, that's not even that, that big a deal. I mean, that's not that big a deal. I saw that trick the other day. Sometimes we're simply stubborn because we feel like what we have now is good enough. We're content with where we are. This morning in the Sunday school lesson, this was one of the things in the lesson. Complacency is the enemy of progress. You can never make progress if you become complacent with where you're at. One time, me and old brother JT, we were looking for some sunglasses. And JT came to me one day all excited. And he said, Andrew, I found a website that's selling Oakleys for $16 a pair. It's like a, it's a uh, wholesale direct from the manufacturer. It's cheap Oakleys, and you can get them for $16. And I said, well, I've got $16. I got to looking on the website, and they had all makes and all types. The big ones, the small ones, the red lenses, the yellow lenses, the blue lenses, the dark lenses. And I'm thinking, man alive, I'm going to get these things. I'm going to look super fly. Well, I got, sometimes I have a tendency to overdo things. My wife could probably tell you a little bit about that. But when I find a good deal, I go for it. A few years ago when the Rangers were going to the playoffs, I bought over $1,500 worth of play, uh, playoff tickets trying to turn my money over and flip it for more profit. Thankfully, they did not make the playoffs that year, and I saved all that money, amen. Sometimes I have a tendency to overdo things. And I got to look, and I was like, well, I, I would like these, and, and I like these, and I like these. Before I knew it, I had five pairs of Oakleys for $16 in the mail. I paid for five pairs what I could have went down to Academy and bought a real pair for. I get these Oakleys in the mail, and for some of you that don't, uh, have never really had very nice sunglasses, there is a difference. Um, the, and, you know, the, the cheaper sunglasses, they, they, you know, they can block your eyes from things, from, from the UV rays, but at the end of the day, well-made sunglasses will stay well-made, and cheap sunglasses will eventually show that they're cheap. And I've owned cheap sunglasses, and I've had to because I'm kind of irresponsible with them, just to be very honest with you. I lose them all the time. But uh, I finally decided to get some nice ones. And when I got these in the mail, I began to handle them. I began to feel the material. I looked at the lenses, and I realized quickly every single one of them were knockoffs. Not one of them was real. They weren't Oakleys. In fact, the K and the L were the same letter. They were what you know as Folkleys. I called JT up. JT, did you realize these are fake? Oh, man. And I got to look at on there. 100% money back guarantee, which is really one of the only reasons I bought them in the first place. But do you know how difficult it is to speak to a Chinese man on email? When they type their language into Google Translator, it does not correctly put it into our order of language. And, and I tried four different times to email Xinjiang Shu over there in Beijing, China. And I even uh, shipped, I boxed my sunglasses up, shipped them back over there. He sent me an address. 
I, I write exactly what he writes in the email on the deal. Three months later, I get them back in the mail. The package is just beat down because it's gone from China to America, back to China, back to America, because that address doesn't exist in China. I emailed him and I corrected him. I said, your whole uh, culture is built on integrity and I can't believe you're trying to make money off of the, the rich Americans. I was so angry. You know what? I still own five pairs of Folkleys and I'm only charging $15 for them now. So it's a good deal. I'll only lose a little bit on it. Did you know that there's always been a difference between the real thing and a cheap knockoff? Always. You know what this world has to offer you? A cheap knockoff. You know what God offers you? The real, bona fide, genuine thing. And the world offers temporary happiness. God offers eternal joy. The world promises that you can really live it up, and God eternals, uh, gives us eternal life. Everything that we can do on this earth, even if we're doing it for the most noble reasons, everything we do here, apart from doing something for the Lord, is temporary and will never last. God offers you a reason and an opportunity to make eternal impact. Sometimes we allow our stubbornness to allow us to choose and motivate us to choose cheap knockoffs, cheap tricks. If we would just open our eyes and read God's word as to what it says, what God offers us is peace, joy, contentment, and what this world offers is embattled lifestyle and embattled living and confrontation and conflict, that's what this world has to offer us. And they just knock off everything good that God does. They offer you just something that's just cheaper and doesn't last. Stubborn because we feel that we're already good enough. And we've, we've kind of we've leveled it out and we, we've got this thing figured out. Tonight as we have an invitation, you'll have the opportunity to admit to yourself and more importantly admit to a God that you haven't got it all figured out. And that you may, at some point in your life, and in some way, be a little bit wrong. But you, you can also be stubborn and convince yourself that, you know, nothing that God has to offer you can really make that big a difference. Nothing that God can give you can improve your life to the point where you can find that joy and that peace. Don't allow your stubbornness to convince you that where you are is where God wants you to be. Because God wants you to draw closer to Him. God wants you to be doing more for Him. Thirdly, you're stubborn because your heart is hard. That's what Pharaoh's problem was. Look in verse 13. Well, we'll start in verse 12. The Bible says, For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. I want to make one thing very clear tonight. When the Bible says he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that does not mean that God made Pharaoh's choice for him. That means God confirmed in Pharaoh's heart what he was already feeling. Pharaoh was not a religious man. Pharaoh considered himself to be divine. Pharaoh did not have any respect of God. So as Pharaoh's heart was hard and his decision was made, I'll never let the children of Israel go, God did not make his decision. Pharaoh had already made his decision, and God was confirming that decision that he had made. In fact, Pharaoh was stubborn already, and the best way to say it is God was just confirming his stubbornness. Nonetheless, Pharaoh looks at uh, Moses and says, No, I'm not going to let the people go. No, I'm not going to allow you to come in here to tell me what to do. Pharaoh was stubborn because he had a hard heart. I want you to take your Bible to Hebrews chapter 3. I want to take some time tonight and teach you a little bit about a hard heart. Hebrews chapter 3. And I believe that one of the main things that keeps Christians cold and complacent with where they are is a hard heart towards God. A hard heart towards His Word and a hard heart towards preaching. In other words, it's kind of like this. 
Sometimes you'll be doing work outside and, and you'll have a shovel and you'll be uh, maybe moving some dirt or you'll be um, uh, doing some heavy labor. And I remember for me, this probably one of the first times this happened was when I had to bale hay and I had to move, I think, 14,000 bales of hay into a barn and we had to stack them in the barn. We had to keep just going back and forth. And I got what was called a, a blister. At first, it was very painful. And I, I had the pain on Monday, and on Tuesday, it was just getting worse. On Wednesday, it hurt worse than it had on Monday or Tuesday. But by Friday, something had happened. Do you all know what had happened? I had gotten a callus. Constant work, constant labor doing the same thing over and over again, had eventually taken something that was soft and turned it into something that was hard. Now, if you know anything about calluses, you lose all type of feeling in callus, don't you? The sensitivity, the sensation leaves when you get callus. That's what the Bible's speaking of in a hard heart. Look at verse uh, number 7 of chapter 3 in Hebrews. The Bible says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, while it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation. I want to share with you three uh, attributes of a hardened heart. First of all, you can have a hardened heart through a deafened ear. Verse number 7 and verse number 15 both include the same phrase. It says in verse number 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today if ye will hear his voice. Verse number 15 says, While it is said, Today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. One thing that will cause a hardened heart in your life is if you remove your ear and you turn a deaf ear to what God is telling you to do. As silly as that may sound, it's very true that someone who cannot hear what is right will never be able to get right. All of us are good at screening phone calls, aren't we? Oh, yes, that's one one of my most frustrating things. I was getting all these calls for car warranties. Every week getting a call, probably three times a week, getting a call to extend the warranty on my wife's car. And every time it would change. One time it'd be Reno, Nevada. The other time it'd be Oshbegosh, Wisconsin, or some goofy thing like that. And, And I was getting calls from all over the United States, but it was always a random place and always a strange number. And so with the first 20 times they got I like answering my phone regardless of where the number's from just because I don't have everybody's number. Sometimes people from the church call me, and I just hate not answering the phone call. But honestly, after about the 25th time when I said, you know what, I already have it, and they just hang up on me, after about the 25th time of that, you know what I started doing? I would see their phone number on my phone, and I would just click this little button. Now, let me teach you something about the iPhone. There's two ways to screen a call, the friendly way and the non-friendly way. You see, when somebody calls you, you have two options. You can screen a call by just pressing the button, and what that does is that turns the ringer or stops the vibration while you allow the call to go to voicemail. But it allows the call to ring the full amount of time so that they don't know you're screening the call. That's the friendly way. The unfriendly way is when you click the button twice. And you immediately cut the connection. So they know. They call you. And they go. They get about half a ring. And you press that button twice. They know you screened their call. 
So I do the first one for church members, and I do the second one for tele... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you get the two-time, Brother Marshall. You know you do. Look, we, we get good at screening calls. What are we doing? We're, we're turning them off. We're tuning them out. We, we don't want to hear what they have to say, and so what we do is we just turn a deaf ear to the phone call. You've done it. You know you have. What if God were trying to speak to you tonight? Would you click the lock button? Would you turn his call in your life on? I'm afraid a lot of us have done it so many times that it has hardened our heart. And while God wants to speak to you and he keeps calling and he keeps knocking, your heart has become so calloused to that knock that it's as if you don't even feel it anymore. And I'm sorry to say this, and you can think whatever you want, but if you never come to the altar as a Christian, I am very concerned about your spiritual well-being. Did you know every good Christian's life in the Bible is marked by altar-type moments where they have great crossings or great victories in their life, and immediately on the other side, they make an altar and they remember that altar. When's the last time you had a meeting with God at this altar and you said, God, I know this was real. God, I know this was you. God, I know that I know you're moving in my life. But we've turned his call off so many times. We sit in our chair so many times. We wouldn't know God calling us if, we, he, if he did it right now, tonight. Unfortunately, we've turned a deaf ear to God. Secondly, a hardened heart can be achieved through a distant heart. In verse number 10, The Bible says, Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. In other words, the the people of Israel had gotten sidetracked. They had allowed their heart to become affectionate to another source. They started loving other things. They started prioritizing other things. And and as God was trying to speak to them, God looks at them and says, their heart even isn't, even, isn't even with me anymore. A distant heart can motivate you to not having a, a, a heart or not having a sensitive heart. Do you know that God wants to fellowship with you intimately? God wants to be a close friend and a close father to you. Would you, would you tonight admit and and evaluate your relationship with the Lord and say that you have an intimate relationship with Him. James chapter 4 says that if we will draw nigh unto God, He will draw nigh unto us. John chapter 15 says, Abide in me and I in you. It's a picture of a very loving and a very nurturing relationship. The Bible says that we have the ability to cry, Abba, Father. In other words, He's not just a father figure, but really he is our dad. He is our loving father. Sometimes our heart gets so distant from him. And and like the hymn writer said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts of The hymn writer understood that sometimes our heart begins to seek other solace. Sometimes our heart begins to look for other retreat. But God is our Father, and God wants that fellowship. And our heart becomes so hard when we begin to love things of this earth and turn it from things above. A hardened heart through a distant heart. Thirdly, a hardened heart can oftentimes be achieved through the deceitfulness of sin. Look at verse number 13. The Bible says, But exhort one another daily while it is today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now one thing that can allow your relationship with God to grow stale quicker than any other thing in this life is living in sin. And I'm thankful for a preacher this morning and even last week who preached hard on sin and preached hard on the results of sin and preaches about sin. I don't want a a preacher that doesn't preach about sin because I'm having trouble not sinning. So I want instruction on how not to do the things I don't want to do. I'm thankful for his witness in that area. 
But I, I, I think that the thing that will more quickly harden your heart than anything is sin. One time I went to the dentist. This was when I was much younger, and my mom took me. This was one of my very first visits ever. And I can't remember exactly what they were doing. They weren't, you know, doing a root canal or anything like that. But I remember they took some numbing medication, and they numbed my mouth. And my mom was sitting there, and we were watching Judge Judy on the television. Because, you know, you get out of school, you go during daytime. That's what's on in the daytime. And you're watching Judge Judy, and you're just having a good old time. And they said, here, we're going to do this. We're going to come right back to the room. Well, it was about 15 or 20 minutes. They left the room and allowed the, the medication to start its numbing effects. And uh, I could feel it because I felt like my face was hanging on the floor. And I, I was asking my mom, I was like, does my face look droopy? Do I sound like my tongue's not working? She said, that's fine. Don't, don't worry about it. I was like, Mom, you wouldn't believe this. I can chew my tongue, and it does not hurt. And she says, son, don't do that. That's going to hurt. Eventually, that's going to hurt. Well, if Mom says to do one thing, what does that mean I have to do? Immediately do the other thing. And I was thinking, this is the most extravagant thing ever. And so I began to treat my tongue as if it was a piece of big league chew or double bubble. And I'm just sitting there going to town, man. I think this is amazing. I can't feel a thing, right? You you know what I mean? And then I realized my cheek had gone numb. I'm thinking, this is even cooler. And I start chewing on my cheek. The doctor or the dentist comes in. He does his work. And, and, uh. He he sends me on my way, and me and Mom are headed home. I got out of school, and she took me home. And About 30 minutes later, I was like, Mom, I'm starting to feel my tongue. She says, yeah, it kind of wears off. No, you don't understand. I feel like my tongue has been attacked by a beehive. And you know what happened over the next two hours? All the numbing effects wore off, and I began to sense the real pain of my actions. Do you know that's what the deceitfulness of sin is? The deception of sin is it makes you think you're invincible. It makes you think that you can do it and and really have no repercussions. I mean, it it just takes away all the consequences and allows you to enjoy the the pleasures of it. But you know what? Eventually, the pain will show up. Eventually, that feeling of uh, invincibility will wear off and you will feel very vulnerable. And the quickest way to have a hardened heart with your God is to enjoy your sin and find yourself feeling like you are invincible and that nobody can touch you and that you can keep getting away with it as long as the wife and as long as the kids and as long as the preacher and as long as all the the members of Joshua Baptist Church don't find out. It's not hurting anybody. It's not hurting me. I'm just having a good time. And you know what you have? A hardened heart. And like Pharaoh God's calling to you. God's asking you to move, and you sit there in your obstinance like a mule. I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. And God knocks at your heart, and you just sit in your seat. What a shame it is for Christians who are unmovable even by the hand of an almighty God. Finally, I want to share this with you. Sometimes we become stubborn because we just simply don't want to change. We don't want to change. We're fine where we're at. Look in verse 14. Back in our original text of Exodus chapter 7, verse number 14 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. Now, I asked you a question earlier, and that question was this. Why was Pharaoh so obstinate, and why would he not just simply do what Moses was asking? Now, I think I know the answer to that, and this is my own personal opinion. I think the Bible's pretty silent on the matter, but 
you can believe what you want, but this is what I think. I think Pharaoh enjoyed being the king over many more people. I read an article this week that estimated the gross total of Israel at three and a half million at this point in time. You know what that meant? That meant that Pharaoh was king over three and a half million more people. If you know anything about the history of these types of kings, like guys like Alexander the Great, these guys enjoyed conquering. They enjoyed the power. They enjoyed having more people subjugated to their rule. And when Moses says, let my people go, I think he was threatening Pharaoh's rule and reign over these people. Not to mention, Pharaoh was getting some very cheap labor. Do you know who built all those great pyramids? you know who built all those beautiful things there in Egypt? Unfortunately, it was not the Egyptians. It was them Jews who had God's blessing even while they were in slavery. Pharaoh enjoyed it. And every monument that was built and every tomb that was brought up kind of made him feel proud. He would host other kings into his kingdom and he'd say, look what I have done. See that great pillar over there, that that tremendous pyramid? That's all me. No, it wasn't him at all. It was the Jews doing that. But he was taking pleasure in his kingdom. And when Moses came to him and asked him, Pharaoh, let these people go. Pharaoh said, no. I'm not going to let them go because I like everything that's going on. I like the power I like, I like lording over these people. And sometimes I'm afraid that that's the same reason we don't get right, is because we like power over our own life, don't we? God comes to us and says, oh, you know you've got a bad habit. And that's what our world calls it, isn't it? Bad habit. It's just a habit. You know you've got a bad sin. That's what the Bible calls it. You know you've got something that's not pleasing to God. You know there's something in your life. And God's spoken to you about it, and yet you look at God and you say, you know what, at the end of the day, it's my life. It's my life to live, and it's my body to destroy. And if you study your Bible, you'll quickly find out that is not at all the case. Oh, it's just another tattoo. Well, you're you're doing it on borrowed property. I couldn't imagine going and get a rental car painted. Could you? come up to the counter and that little lady behind the counter says, this says you drove a blue sedan and you're returning a white one? Yeah, I just just took some privileges. Yeah, that wouldn't fly. One day we're going to have to show up before an almighty God and look him in the face and say, he says, what did you do with the thing that I gave you? Your your body, the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is not your own, for you're bought with a price. And you're going to have to look at God and you're going to have to say, well, I took some privileges. Look, God tonight is wanting His children closer to Him than they've ever been before. I'm not joking about this revival thing. I'm not playing about this revival thing. I believe God can bring revival, but it's going to take some Christians who will say, if my heart is hardened before an almighty God, God, I'll get right. God, if there's something in my life that isn't pleasing to you, God, I'll get rid of it. God, the only thing that I want in my life, the only thing that I desire is not a job, is not success. God, the only thing that matters to me is pleasing you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my being. That's the only thing that matters. But until we stop fooling around thinking that we own this, and that this is our life to enjoy, we'll never see it. We'll never experience God's great vision for your life unless we finally look up one day and say, sometimes I act a little bit like Pharaoh. And God requests of me to make a change, and I just am not willing to make it. And I will say this, and you can't, say anything about it as far as that it's unbiblical, who did God use to relay God's message? God's man. Sometimes you sit in your pew and you say, well, I can't believe a preacher would say that. He's just old-fashioned. Yeah, God has always used God's men to deliver God's message. And you can sit there and you can say, well, I'm not a preacher one day. 
you're just one of them old, fuddy-duddy traditionalists. I bet that's what Pharaoh said to Moses. Moses, you're just a traditionalist. You're, you're a little bit legalist at times. That's not even what legalism means. You don't even know the term, so stop using it. Preacher, you're just too traditional. I, I don't see much wrong with living with a person to see if I want to make it work out. Look, it's not traditional. It's not progressive. It's simply biblical. And when God's man is preaching God's message, it would do God's people good to take heed to it. And if at any point you don't think we're preaching God's message, you have every right in the world to find another place that is. Tonight I'm afraid we're stubborn. I'm afraid we've hardened our heart and we're not drawing closer to God. We've said, no, I don't want to change. I'm content where I am. It was not long ago, me and JT and I think Cody, I can't remember the other person that was going with us. We were headed down to Whitney to do some soul winning. And uh, we got down about Cleaver. Well, I, I showed up to where the boat is. We store the boat. We always keep it plugged in. And we have this little checklist we have to do to make sure, you know, we got the boat latched on. Because the last thing we want is our boat in the middle of somebody's field. So we got to make sure the boat's latched to the trailer or, or to the hitch. We got to make sure the lights are plugged in. We got to make sure they're working. Um, and I looked at JT and I said, JT, and I was on the phone. That's what it was. I was on the phone counseling somebody. And I was talking. That's, that's legitimate. I'm not kidding about that. You're all like, yeah, sure, you unspiritual booger. <laughs> no, I was, I was literally talking to somebody. And I looked at JT and I said, is the boat unplugged? And he goes, Yes. And I said, okay, let's go. We hop in the boat, or hop in the truck, and we're headed down. Well, we, we get all the way to Cleburne. Uh, we pass McCoy's and the cemetery there, uh, right off 174. We keep going, and right there uh, is the cattle barn. Y'all know the cattle sale? Uh, some of you would better know it by Chance's Nightclub, I think. Well, y'all is probably how y'all would know it. But, uh, some of y'all know that's true, too. You're like, I had no idea there was a cell bar in there. Most of the time, I come out, I don't even know. We're driving down 174, and uh, this Mustang pulls up, and they're acting crazy. They've got their hazards on. They've got their blinker. They're swerving side to side. And I looked at JT and said, well, it's obvious they've been the chances. They're acting insane. And I look at JT, I'm like, what is this cat doing? And he's almost hitting me. And he's in, like, inside the car. We can see him. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. It's like the newfangled way of showing somebody the turkey. And I'm like, what in the world? I'm telling you, I looked at JT, I was puzzled. I I was like, JT, we checked everything, right? Yeah, 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 we're good. Are the lights working? We look in the rearview mirror, and the lights are working fine on the trail. I'm like, this guy's nuts. He will not leave us alone. He rides right on the front left tire of the truck. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? And he turns on his blinker like he's going to cut me off. I go, if this guy cuts me off, I'm shooting an arrow in his back, uh, back window. He's, it looks like he's about to cut me off. Eventually... I'm like, okay, I'm going to pull over and let this guy go past me. So I pull over on the shoulder. In fact, we were in the cattle auctions parking lot. I'm like, I'm just going to go look and check and make sure everything's good on the boat. And I go back there, and it turns out that JT, when I asked him if the boat was unplugged, he didn't hear me. And the boat was, in fact, not unplugged. And we had been dragging a 50-foot extension cord all the way from Joshua. I mean, we were probably still plugged into the house. <laughs> and I tell you, it was so funny because I'm thinking, what is this idiot doing? Why is he giving me such a hard time the whole time? You know who the idiot was? JT! No, 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 I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It was me! I wasn't listening to the warning. I wasn't hearing what he had to say. 
I, I couldn't, it, there's no way it could have been me, so it obviously had to be him. You know what happens in our life? We look and we evaluate our life and say, there's no way I've got a problem. Everybody else has got a problem. Everybody else has issues. I don't have issues. I've got this thing figured out. All the while, God is giving you signs, giving you warnings. What are you doing, child? Child, fix that. Get right. Get, get where I need you to be. Child, get back in my will. And we sit there. Now, what's this guy even doing? Stubborn. Tonight, I wish we were as stubborn as a mule, but I'd probably say most of us are more like the fool. And we just like Pharaoh, sit in our throne, lording over our life all the while, God trying to speak to us. You know, tonight you're about to have an opportunity to come to an altar. Or you can stay back where you're at. 